All right. The name of this message is the imperative of knowing Jesus. The imperative of knowing Jesus. It's critical that you know Christ. And I say that because one of the passages that I find the most of, among the most heartbreaking in all of Scripture is in Matthew chapter 7, where these peop- there's these people in Judgment Day, and they've said Jesus is Lord. And they're absolutely deceived because they will even talk about things that they did for his glory. Miracles, cast out demons, you know, did wonderful miracles and so forth. And he said he'll say to them, I never what? I never knew you. He said, depart from me. That's in Matthew 7. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. And in Matthew 25, he makes a declaration to others who seemed a little bit shocked too. And he says, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. Those are strong words. And that shows me that there are going to be a lot of people that are shocked, especially there in Matthew 7. And that's in the context of false prophets. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, to enter the narrow gate, right? For broad is the way, and spacious is the way that leads to destruction. And many go that way, but narrow is the gate, and straight is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So it's really interesting to me that there's a contrast between the few and the many. And the few are on the narrow road that leads to life, right? The broad gate, it's big. A lot of people can get in it. There's not a concern. The the way is broad. It's big. It's spacious. You can fit everybody on that road. And many are on that road. But he said few. In fact, when he talked about that in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus said, agonizomai, you know, strive that you may enter the narrow gate. That's the word we get agonized from. It's not the easiest gate. You see, Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? Camel is going to agonize to get through the eye of the needle. It's going to probably have to get rid of its hump, right? Well, the rich man is probably going to have, if he's trusting in his riches, he's going to have to, get, he's going to, have to repent of trusting his riches and trust Jesus. So it's imperative because, who knows, that could be millions of people, because right after he says that, the very next thing he says when he talks about these two roads where there's many and there's few, he says very, very clearly, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he talks about something that's very important to understand. He says, you'll know them by their what? Their fruit. But why does he speak of false prophets in the context of these two roads? Because the false prophets are in front of the two roads and they're beckoning you to take the broad road. And they claim to represent Christ because they come to you in sheep's clothing. And it's in that context that Jesus said, many will come to, you, to me on that day saying, you know, I cast out demons in your name. You know, I did all these miracles and so forth. And I believe he's speaking to the false prophets there. That con- that's the context. I never knew you. There's many false prophets who are preaching a broad way that leads to destruction. But what are the definitive things about these false prophets that show that they were denying Christ? You can't say it was the miracles and the casting out of demons. Those things are mentioned in Scripture. Uh, Those are good things if they're truly done biblically. But what does it say? How do we identify these false prophets? He says you'll know them by their fruit. What's their fruit? He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's lawlessness? The Bible says in the book of James that... uh, you know, or First John, that lawlessness is transgression of God's law. It's rebellion against God. It's rebellion. Some translations say it's rebellion. It's rebellion against God's law. Sin is rebellion of God's law. Rebellion against his law. And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You did not do the will of the Father. So instead of doing God's will, they were in rebellion to God. That was the fruit of their lives. Think about it. You know, there's probably all kinds of fruit, I mean, that we wouldn't see. Uh, and he talked about how, you, you know, you don't gather, you know, 
thorns and thistles right from, uh, from grapevines, right? And vice versa. And they're putting out lawlessness instead of the fruit of salvation. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, you know, who told you to come out here, right? They're coming out watching his baptisms. They couldn't really deny him because people were recognizing him as the prophet that was to come that would announce Messiah. And they're having a hard time at that point renouncing him. But he said to them, you know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says the ax is already laid to the root of the tree. He said every tree that does not bear good fruit there in Matthew chapter 3 will be cut down and thrown in the fire and be burned. He said bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, fruitfulness. Thorns, thistles, that goes really well with Matthew chapter 7. And then Jesus in John chapter 15 talked about abiding in him, amen. And in verse 6 he said if a man does not remain in me, right, He'll wither and die. And, but he says, he, he talked about bearing fruit. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that bears fruit, you know, uh, and so forth, will, he'll prune, he'll bear more fruit. But in verse 6, he says, if man doesn't remain in me, he'll wither and die. He'll be cut off and thrown in the fire and burned. And I agree with most commentators there that to be cut off, thrown in the fire, and to be burned, uh, almost, I mean, the great preponderance of scholars uh, agree that, you know, He's talking about, you know, eschatological judgment on the judgment day. It's very serious. So we want to make sure, and as a pastor, who God's given a shepherd's heart, you get real concerned about your brothers and sisters in the Lord and want to make sure that they know Jesus. Because in John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life. This is eternal. I want to know what eternal life is, amen? Don't you want to know what eternal life is? I mean, sometimes I ask a question when I'm witnessing or just sharing with people, is there any more important question than where and who, you know, you spend eternity with? I can't think of something more important than whether you know Jesus or not. Amen? Because Jesus said, what does it profit him if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So I love John 73. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, the Father, right? And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life that you might what? Know him. That's why I started, do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus? Because there's an awful lot of people out there that don't know the Lord. In fact, the cults are very, very good about keeping people from Jesus. In fact, when you look at what cults teach, they don't talk a whole lot about Jesus, I noticed. When I've been around Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, when I was a new Christian, I didn't know any other Christians. Norman, Mormons came by, Jehovah's Witnesses came by, I opened up my door and hung out with all of them. I was already doing They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll, it's called Rock and Roll Sources of the New Age Revolution early on, it probably didn't have that title yet, but I was showing whoever would listen at first, hey, look what's going on here. And I, I got invited to a house where there was like 25, 30 Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, did a whole presentation for them. They'd never let a Christian do that, but I guess because I wasn't affiliated with the church and they were trying to suck me in, they invited me. And then the Mormons, they brought like 10 or 12 elders, you know, which I, I thought was kind of strange. So I was in the Bible, man. They're called elders. I'm like, man, they're my age. I was in my early, you know, I was like 18, 19 years old. And I'm like, wow, they didn't look very elderly, but hey, hear what they have to say. And, uh, you know, Paul says the elder must be married to only one wife. They just were getting puberty, I think, into puberty maybe, you know. Like, they ain't married to one wife. Uh, Anyway, so it was interesting when that was going on because I was sharing with them and I noticed I was already loving the Lord, loving Jesus. And I was searching the scriptures and I was seeing very quickly these guys, it was about a system. They didn't talk about Jesus. And I was all excited about Jesus, you know. And when I went to my first, the first Christian church I visited not long after that, where there was Christians, evangelicals that loved Jesus, were obedient to God's word and seeking his face, you know. You'd hear, praise the Lord, you know. Hallelujah. Because I went to the Mormon stake in town. I went to the Kingdom Hall there on First Street. I didn't hear people praising the Lord and all excited about Jesus, you know. And I loved it, man, because I was going to a, a church uh, where there were younger people about my age. And, you know, I was like, you start praising God, you know, you're, Wow, they're lifting their hands, you know. You start praising them, and you're like, get them up a little higher, and you're just worshiping the Lord, you know. Uh, but because you stick your hands up and you, up and you say praise the Lord, and there's an excitement, that doesn't mean everybody in those churches knows the Lord either, right? Uh, 
the JWs and Mormons, though, I started to realize, man, I'd, I'd read in the scripture about what Jesus did on the cross, and I'd read about enemies of the cross. I'd think, man, how come these Jehovah's Witnesses don't have a cross? I started studying them, and I found out they did use a cross early on when they're trying to suck people into the movement. Then they got rid of it. And then the Mormons, I even asked them, I said, hey, how come you guys don't use a cross? I mean, that's what Jesus did. He died for the sins of the world. Well, we don't want to, would you want to remember, would you want to put something up that your dad was killed by in the war? That was the answer I got. I go, well, he actually, Jesus came to die on that cross to save us for our sins. And Paul says, I'll boast in this, right? I boast in the, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross, amen? And it was just kind of interesting because I noticed as I began to study their theology more and more that Jesus wasn't that big of a deal in Mormonism because he was one of many saviors. I was told that. Uh, because keep in mind, there's many gods and you can become a god and you can populate your own planets and send your own Jesus, you know. And for, for Jehovah's Witnesses, it was kind of the same deal. He's really just the Archangel Michael. He's not really the uncreated creator of all things. God created through him after he created Jesus, which isn't the biblical Jesus. But I also noticed that they were constantly distancing themselves from a personal relationship with Christ or their followers. Because I got the New World Translation. I got there in a linear. I called it the purple people leader. So I'd be able to compare the Greek to the English as I started to learn the terms and how they were translating them, whether it was consistent or not. And I noticed in the New World Translation, instead of having in Christ, which we have in Christ, because we're in Jesus, amen, we have a relationship with him. They had in union with Christ, as though it was some kind of contractual thing, you know, belonging to the union, you know, or something. I thought, and then I noticed, not only did they not emphasize the cross, did, not only did they diminish Christ to the point where he wasn't God. Not only did they have just, you know, in union with, which I just thought was a, an awkward translation because they wanted to distance from knowing Jesus, but they didn't talk about the need to be born again. Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Right? Well, why weren't they doing that? Because the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that only the 144,000 can be born again. That's, that's not for the average person. And at that time, I think there was only one lady in that kingdom hall down the street, because I lived just off of First Street at the time, an older Greek lady that believed that she was born again and that she was 144,000, which I thought was peculiar because this is 144,000 men, right, from the 12 tribes of Israel, and she wasn't a man and she wasn't even Jewish, said from the 12 tribes. So when I was seeing through a lot of what they were saying, I was also seeing something quite interesting that they were dissing themselves from Jesus in the emphasis of being born again and knowing him and being children of God. See, you can't be a child of God unless you're one of the 144,000 because they're the ones that are born again into God's heavenly family, you see. And I remember going to the kingdom hall because they asked me, can't you come this time? Because they were going to do communion and only the 144,000 could take Communion. Isn't that interesting? Jesus told all of his disciples, right, to take it. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and you know the Corinthians were a pretty messed up church in some ways, right? But he didn't say exclusively for just a few people at the church of Corinth. Amen. All the believers were to take communion. And Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have what? No part of me. Amen. It's not literally his flesh. It's not literally his blood. But it's a picture of entering into a salvation experience through faith in him. Amen. And I thought, wow, isn't it crazy? And if you look at how to witness the Jehovah's Witnesses, you won't hear a lot of things I'm mentioning right now. These were just my own experiences. Early on, I was like, wow, you know, the Lord was showing me the cults. Wow, they are anti-Christ, even though they profess Christ. They don't have the Christ of the Bible. And I found it a really interesting way to witness to them, though. When you start to show them, and instead of attacking the person, we wrestle against flesh and blood, Right? Recognize that these guys have been victimized by a false gospel. I go after the Watchtower, for instance. They're in New York. And they say they get the revelations from angels. Yeah, you do. Lying spirits. Fallen angels. Very likely. And then I let them know how the false prophecies have been made to them through the organization. And try to show them that you are being deceived. And, but this is what concerns me. Because I'm not talking to a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses tonight. Or a bunch of Mormons. 
I'm talking to Christians that, I'm talking to born-again believers or professing born-again believers. And I've found also in churches, you can have the right gospel, but still not know Jesus. That's a concern to me. In fact, one of the factors I believe the Lord has used in my life as I've been praying off and on about this message tonight was a discussion I had with my dear, old, my dear mom. <laughs> uh, just spent some time with her and Peggy and Kenny and, you know, uh, Patty and Robbie and the families out there and the believers over there in Idaho. And beautiful things happening over there. Just, just such a love for Jesus. And we did the same presentation on Marvel in D.C. that we did here the Wednesday before we went over there. Went, went really well. And I'm getting to see that it's, people, it's going to wake a lot of people up because the way we're getting the responses. But you know, it was interesting. My mom said to me, and she recounted the story. She said, yeah, you know, Annie and I sometimes talk about, you know Annie, Sonny and Annie. And my mom and Annie both came from Lutheran backgrounds. And she said, yeah, Annie and I, you know, we've had that talk, you know, where as Lutherans, you know, we, we, we didn't know we needed to be born again. We didn't know about having a personal relationship with Christ. We didn't understand that. And then, you know, when we came to Blessed Hope, in Annie's case and my mom's case, it was actually going to a church in Thousand Oaks where I was preaching. as maybe like 20 years old or so, and uh, 2021. And they invited me to do a presentation on music. And I gave a salvation call. A couple of really old folks came up. Probably my age right now. You know, now I think back at it. Now they were, they were, they were still a bit older. But, uh, but she also came up and confessed faith in Christ. And she's known the Lord ever since. And then she shares with me that story where she started. Then she met Annie with a fellowship started sometime later. And she said, we had the same experience. We just thought we were Christians. But we weren't born again. We'd have a relationship with Jesus. And that's what she emphasized. I thought it was interesting. We didn't know about how you could know the Lord and you need to know the Lord. And she's told me that story, you know, three, four times through the years. And I always blessed my heart to say, you know, I was like, praise God. You know, you get it. You know, you know the Lord. You seek him. You know Jesus. Amen. But you know what? There's Lutherans and people that belong to, you know, Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod, and so forth, that aren't trusting in their baptism, that aren't trusting in things, but are trusting in, you know, salvation by Christ alone, amen, by grace alone, through faith alone, amen, and they're actually putting their trust in Jesus. So I'm not saying that, that so I'm not putting the Lutherans on the same level, I'm putting the cults. There's a lot of saved Lutherans out there, but a lot of them don't get the message, right, that it's a relationship with Jesus and putting faith in his gospel, what he's done for you on the cross and knowing him, amen, that you get saved. So it's important for us to understand that it's not just for some select few, like the JWs teach, oh, only 140,000 be born again. And by the way, for them, pretty much everyone's dead that, because that started a certain year, right? 1914, and now unless you are, you know, 107 years old, and still a Jehovah's Witness, nobody else can even become one of the 140,000, which is ridiculous. You know why? Because during the tribulation period, God seals the 144,000 Jews from 12 tribes so they don't partake of the wrath of God. Hasn't even happened yet, right? Their theology is messed up, obviously. The eschatology, the soteriology, the pneumatology, Christology, on and on. Everything is messed up. That's why it's a cult. But guess what? It's important that you know, 1 John 5, 1, he that believes that Jesus Christ is born of God. Amen? You don't have to be one of 144,000 to be born of God. Amen? You just need to trust Jesus. Believe in him as the Son of God. Put your trust in him, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the, only, uh, Jesus, uh, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now, a lot of people are teaching, though, in evangelical churches now, okay? It's coming from the pulpits and, and, and you know, countless churches that where, I, where, the, the, where knowing Jesus and coming to Jesus is de-emphasized. It's more about believing in a proposition. What am I saying? Believing that Jesus Christ 
died for your sins, that he's the son of God, and you'll be saved. Now, we praise God. Yeah, you want to believe that Jesus Christ, right, is the son of God. He died for your sins. Amen. You, you can't reject those propositions and be saved. But guess what? The emphasis is on the propositions, not on knowing Jesus, not on coming to Jesus. So you have a lot of these people filling churches who are told they can have assurance of salvation and they can have absolute assurance as long as they just believe the proposition that Jesus died for their sins. And so you have all kinds of people, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, telling, you, I'm telling you right now, where their pastors are emphasizing, just believe that fact. They'll say, just make that, men, just, just assent to that, make that mental assent that that's true and you'll be saved. This is serious stuff because that means there's a lot of people believing they're going to heaven, but they haven't come to Jesus yet. They just believe a certain thing to be true. Now, Catholics believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for them, right? Right? Why would we witness the Catholics? Wouldn't they all be saved then? No, just believing that doesn't mean you are trusting, putting your faith in. And a, a, a great synonym for a pistuo, uh, believe or have faith, is trust, relying on him. You could believe that that seat you're sitting in today will hold you up. But it's not holding you up until you what? Sit down. It's not enough to know the fact about what that seat was made for and what it can do for you. But you have to understand why God became a man in the person of Christ and not just believe the facts of it, but you must rely on him. You must know Jesus. You know, and as, as your brother in Christ, as your pastor, I emphasize so often, knowing Jesus, following him, amen? Seeking him. Now this is very, very important. It's not a trivial matter, okay? It's important that we understand. Yeah, you wanna make sure you don't have the wrong gospel. Now, there are many of these groups, a lot of these guys are called free grace teachers. It's a very popular movement now. A lot of these guys come out of Dallas Theological Seminary, okay? And by the way, just, you know, not all the professors out of Dallas Theological Seminary hold this. In fact, I, would, I think that most probably don't. But many popular professors that came out of there, like Zane Hodges and, and Rob Wilkins and others, having many students that proliferate, started churches, and then it's just taken off and... It's got into the Calvary chapels, you know, and it's got not all the Calvary chapels, but some of them. And it's just spread its tentacles throughout a lot of the churches. And this, this is a concern because they're teaching now. Now, keep in mind, there's two extremes. And either extreme will leave you in your sins. Either extreme will damn your soul. There's those that emphasize propositional truth. Okay, we have to believe that Jesus is God. Not all of them say that even. <laughs> but or we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they died for our sins and then you're saved. You just believe that. But you don't have to come to him. Not, that's what they say. Then you have, and, by, and then I have others that say, well, you need to come to Jesus. But you don't have to believe these propositions about what it says about him. Postmodernism, right? You don't have to believe necessarily that he's the son of God. In fact, that's something that's between people and God and let them have their own relationship. And they talk about this, I'm spiritual. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But if you talk about, do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? You believe he's the son of God that gave himself for you. It's like, oh, I want to talk about that. And there's a lot of professing, professing Christians or professing Christians, not necessarily Christians, that do that. So to me, you need both. You need to believe the true propositions of who Jesus is. Amen. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Right? the Son of God, in believing that you may have life in his name, amen? But also, this eternal life that they might know thee, that they might know thee, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You have to know him. You can't leave out one. You can't say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, you know, and, 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 and I'm trusting in him, but I don't know what the Bible says or care what the Bible says about him. He's just my Jesus. It's my own personal relationship, and you don't care about propositional truth. And what the Bible says about who he is. Because the Bible warns in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about believing in a different Jesus. A different gospel. Receiving a different spirit. So that's an extreme which, re which doesn't come to Jesus. Or but says you've come to Jesus but you, you disregard the propositions of who the Bible says he is. And you're not actually coming to the Jesus of the Bible. 
in many cases. And the others will say, oh yeah, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins for sure, but you don't have to come to him. It doesn't have to be a personal relationship. You're saved if you just assent to certain facts. The Bible talks about more than assenting to certain facts. Jesus gave a summary of, in the, in, of which was very propositional, in the Great Commission in Luke chapter 24, teaching repentance for the remission of sins. Amen? And when he summarizes his gospel that he preaches in the book of Acts, he talks about how we talked about repentance and doing good works in keeping with repentance. Now, we don't believe that repentance is good works, okay? We believe that repentance involves a change of mind. That's what the Greek word means, metanoia, a change of mind. But you, in the biblical context, it's a change of mind about who you are before God, who he is, and your sin, and what Jesus has done for you. It's an inner resolve that I am going to stop rebelling against you and doing my own thing, and I'm going to embrace Christ and what he did for me on the cross for forgiveness. It's an inner resolve of a, a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of will, where you're no longer in seeking to rebel against him, amen? And then you turn to him in your heart, amen? Repentance, it talks about repentance from sins, amen? And when you turn to him in your heart, the obedience is a result or a fruit of repentance, okay? Obedience is not repentance. Obedience is the fruit of repentance, okay? Some teach that uh, obedience is actually repentance. Uh, obedience and faith are the you know, faith is obedience. Obedience is faith. And John Stott teaches that. John MacArthur teaches that at least one time in, in the gospel according to Jesus. But 99% of what he says about faith is good because he's coming against the very teachings I'm talking about in those older books. It's just I think he conflates, at one point he conflates uh, faith and obedience. Faith is obedience. And it'd be better to say obedience is a result of faith, right? Faith that works is dead. We're saved by faith alone, right? Remember that, Bible? But the faith that saves is never what? Alone. Now that's, I'm not quoting the Bible right there, but that's what the Bible teaches. When it, the Bible does say we're saved by grace through faith, amen? That, and it does teach that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. So it's very clear we're not saved by our works, amen? But James chapter two is really, 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 really clear that the faith that saves is never what? Alone. So what does it mean? We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That means, guess what? I'm saved through trusting Christ and not by anything I do. I put my trust in him. He saves us. He died for us. Amen? We don't add one iota for our, to our salvation. We're justified. We're declared righteous. Amen? God says, I'm not going to punish you now because my son accepted your punishment on, on your behalf. And we put our faith in him. But if we're truly putting our faith in him, the result of faith is evidential with fruit. Amen? Paul put it like this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Faith works through love. And I know like Wayne Grudem and others have jumped on MacArthur for saying faith is obedience. But I think if you probably sat down with him, he'd probably say, well, what I mean is obedience is a fruit of faith. It's probably what he does mean there. So I'm not going to hold, because I, I don't believe he teaches that you have to at all have to work for your salvation. And I'm not saying that that means everything's golden. I have a problem with the whole mark of the beast teaching, that you could take that and repent later, things like that still. But I want to be fair. Well, we have to make sure that we, we need to be, try to be precise in our theology, amen, so we don't confuse people. And sometimes what we got to be careful too, because we start to define things, we have to be careful how we define them, because we can end up doing the opposite of what we're trying to do. But I do want you to understand that there's an emphasis right now that it's simply mental assent. Believing certain facts about Jesus is what will save you. In fact, Zane Hodges, one of the leaders of the so-called free grace movement from Dallas Theological Seminary, claims that uh, one only need believe the gospel, but can refuse to come to Jesus Christ as your Lord. You can just believe the gospel. You don't have to, you can refuse to come to Jesus. And he says this, it is the inward conviction, saving faith, he says, is the inward conviction that what God says to us is the God and the gospel is true. Just conviction that it's true. That, and that, he says, and that alone is saving faith. So you just need to believe it's true and you'll be saved. 
And what I'm saying here, and this isn't trivial, you don't have to come to Jesus though. That is a false gospel presentation. Okay, Bob Wilkin, he's a founder, also from Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, founder of Grace Evangelical Society in Grace in Focus article that I was looking at today, actually. He says, faith in Christ is intellectual assent. Now, we agree that intellectual assent of who he is is important, right? But that's not all it is, guys. He says, faith in Christ is intellectual assent. For example, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? If you do, then you know what faith is from a biblical perspective. Just believe that George Washington is, was the first president of the United States. That's like faith. Just believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You get it? Is that all it is? Just believe that Jesus died for you and you're saved? Then he goes on to say, if you do, then you know what faith is from a biblical perspective. There is no commitment, no decision of the will, no turning from sins. That's what's being taught today. And if this was just a couple guys that, you know, didn't get any traction, but it colors the way a lot of people preach. Very, very, very popular teachers. I'll be driving down the street and, you know. I'm even, uh, we've gone to some of those Greg Laurie crusades, but then they pass out the Gospel of John in the beginning. He says, there's a difference between being saved and being disciple. And I'm like, we can't pass this out. So you can be saved, but not become a disciple. That's when you decide that you really want to follow Jesus, but that's different than salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches, you know. You can't, re you can't reject Jesus' lordship over your life and just say, I'm going to take the Savior part of him. And that's why, and you need to understand this, that's why there's a de-emphasis on coming to Jesus. Because it's kind of really hard to come to Jesus if you're not repentant, isn't it? Right? So they don't emphasize coming to Jesus because they don't want people to think that they need to repent. And they think, well, if you're telling people they have to come to Jesus, then that implies they need to get right with him. And we don't want them to believe that because that would be work salvation. We want them just to believe they could believe what he did for them and go their merry way and they're saved. And yeah, hopefully they'll come to him later and be good disciples sometime down the line. It's a twist, guys, which is far more dangerous than, than not, not the false gospel Mormons in, in the Watchtower, Joe Witnesses, in the sense of what the content is, but it's dang more dangerous in this way is that it's more widespread, obviously, within the churches. Because Mormons and JWs, we don't allow on Christian radio, right? We don't allow in the pulpits, right? And, you know, A.W. Tozer wrote against this years and years ago. You know, none dare call it heresy. Talked about dividing Christ's lordship from being savior and so forth. And, and MacArthur wrote Faith Works and the Gospel According to Jesus and the Gospel According to Apostles. And, you know, Wayne Grudem wrote a book on this. And, uh, and the guys from Dallas Theological Seminary, Charles Ryrie. I don't know if you've seen, remember you have the Ryrie Study Bible in the past? You know, Doug's hand went up. We got a trash bin right over there, Brother Doug. No, he didn't have that anymore. But he, these, are, these are study Bibles you get at your Bible bookstore that are proponents of these doctrines. And it's serious. Because if you don't turn to Christ, right? You don't cease rebelling from him and turn to him. You just say, oh, I just believe in my mind and your sins. That's going to be, there's going to be many, many people who believe that they're Christians who are going to say, Lord, Lord, he's going to say what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You did not do the will of the Father. Because they're not turning from lawlessness. Do you understand? It's not just happening in a vacuum. It's being taught from the pulpits. That doesn't mean people aren't sincere who are teaching it. That means they're sincerely deceived. Now, we need to believe the propositional truth that God shares with us and not reject what he says about who Christ is and be thankful for who God is in the person of Christ Jesus, that Jesus is the God-man, the uncreated creator of all things, God who became flesh, gave himself for us. But we also need to make sure we come to him and have a relationship with him. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And when you get there, you know, in Romans 10, Paul says something very, very important. Look at verse 8. But what does it say, Paul writes, Romans 10, 8? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you what? Confess with your mouth Jesus as what? Lord, right? You confess him as your Lord. 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's propositional truth you need to believe. But you don't just believe it in your brain, right? You confess him, right? You believe in your heart. You confess him with your mouth. And look at verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Look at verse 13. Let's not leave it out. For whoever what? Calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. In other words, you're not just believing what he did for you. You're calling on him. There's a relationship there. You have to have a relationship with Jesus. Do you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you called upon him? Or do you just come to church saying, you know what? I agree with what Joe's preaching. His Bible. He's always with the Bible. He's quoting the Bible. He's, it's the word of God. I believe that. Yeah. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe he died for me. Yes, I believe he's God in the flesh even. But have you come to him? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why you constantly hear me emphasizing not only believing the true Jesus, not only believing the true gospel, but you hear me constantly encouraging you to call upon him. John 1, 12. As many as received him. That's a relationship. Amen. As many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Not just 144,000. John 1, 12. As many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. You have a relationship with him. Colossians chapter 2. As you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, now walk in him. So we receive him as our Lord and as our Savior. You notice in verses 9 and 10 there is propositional truth. And you have to confess it, right? Believe in your heart and confess it. And you have to also call upon him. Okay? And when you call upon him, that's an expression of faith. Now, this is where, you know, I, I wanted an illustration to try to get you to understand how serious this is and the differences that are going on here. And it's a very, very simple illustration I was thinking about. You could have the right medicine, right? Now you can have the wrong medicine. Let's say you have a terminal disease, okay? And you break out with like psychedelic warts all over your body and they tell you it's terminal, you're gonna die in three days. It's over for you, it's all over. But then all of a sudden, wow, they found other people throughout the world have also got these psychedelic warts. That wasn't part of my analogy. I didn't know what the sickness would be. It just came up in my... See, you got all kinds of people with psychedelic warts, so other countries have been working on them. And guess what? They found the cure. They've got the right medicine. Okay? Now you want... But then also there's phony medicines going around, right? You want the right medicine, amen? You want to make sure, hey, this is the medicine that really works. And so you don't want the Jehovah's Witness medicine. You don't want the Mormon medicine. You don't want the Scientology medicine. You don't want the religious science medicine. You don't want the Christian science medicine. You don't want the way of international medicine. You don't want Eastern mysticism medicine. You want, you want the gospel medicine, amen, that's going to take those words away. But guess what? So you want to stay away from the cults. But guess what? You can have the right medicine, but not take it. You could go to churches or you could go to seminars or you could go to weekly to hear messages about how effective the medicine is and how all your words will go away and you'll be saved. But if you don't come and partake of the medicine, you will still die, amen? There's a lot of people in these churches who are hearing even the right medicine, the right Jesus, God in the flesh, died for our sins, but they're not being told they need to come to Jesus. They're being told they can reject his lordship and that repentance is optional. And that sanctification is not necessarily tied to justification. And you can, have, you can celebrate justification and reject the idea of being sanctified. This is so unscriptural. You know, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, he said to them, you search the scriptures in John chapter 5, verses 34 through 40. You search the scriptures diligently because you believe that in them you have eternal life. But you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. People can search the scriptures, quote it left and right, and talk to you about Jesus, Son of God, write books on it, but they don't talk about coming to him because it throws a wrench in their false gospel presentation. Now notice I say false gospel presentation. 
I'm trying to be careful here. I'm saying that for a reason. Because if they're teaching that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, amen, that's good. They're teaching the Son of God, amen. They're, the gospel, it seems right at that point. But the way they present it, the Galatians, the Judaizers could say, hey, we believe Jesus died for our sins, of course, Paul. But they say you got to do all these works and be circumcised and keep the Sabbath and everything else to be what? To be saved. Well, now your presentation is messed up. So even though you're saying, affirming Jesus died for our sins and so forth, you're telling people that, guess what? It's trust in Jesus plus you got to do all these works of the law. Well, these other guys have a right gospel presentation to a degree, but then they're distorting how you apply the medicine to your life. I've talked about some of these things before with regard to rejecting Christ as Lord, with regard to uh, rejecting repentance. Uh, they say, you know, works don't need to be evidence of faith. In fact, these, some of these leaders, one of the ones I just quoted in Romans 10 right there, what I was quoting, oh, that has nothing to do with salvation. That's what he says. That has nothing, you know, uh, nothing to do with salvation. You believe that God raised him from the dead, you will, you know, you know, that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, that just means saved from an unfruitful life, not salvation. You don't need to do that for salvation. Wow, really? Because in verse 1 of chapter 10, the context is pretty clear. My brother, uh, brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God is for their salvation. And in Romans 9, he's talking about those who aren't saved. And that's the context. I'm sorry, that's the context. And, and it's just amazing how they try to get out of just clear verses. And it would be a joke and it would be even laughable. But I can't laugh about it because it's so serious. It's so serious. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, he who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. So believing and coming are synonyms. So when you see coming to him, it also means believing in him. When you see believing, it also means coming to him or putting your trust in him. But I said to you that you have not seen me and you do not believe. I, I'm sorry, but I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, in the present tense, comes to me and continues to come to me, I will certainly not cast out. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, one of my favorite verses in the Gospels. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary, tired, and heavily, heavy laden or heavily burdened, and I will what? Give you rest for your souls, right? My burden is light. My yoke is easy, amen? We come to him. That's a call. When we were out ministering several times over in Holland, you know, sometimes we'd go with Narhaus, and that's Narhaus would be the big giant bus, and that means to the house. And we go and uh, we would travel with them when I do these presentations and hang out with them and so forth. But they would, they would do it when we weren't there. They would go up to houses where there are meth addicts and, or S ecstasy parties and everything till the wee hours of the morning, till it gets light out and people come stumbling out of those houses all high and everything. They'd invite them those, into their vans and share Jesus with them. It was beautiful. Real beautiful believers, man. And you know what? It's a trip because uh, on the side of that bus, it was just that scripture. I said, what does that say? Because it wasn't in English. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to him. Amen? Come to him. In fact, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. In fact, Galatians 1.6 Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I'm amazed to those who are falling into the trap of the Judaizers. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ. It's a relationship. You're deserting who? You're deserting him, okay? Uh, Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart in departing from the living God. It's a relationship, amen? If you're saved, you have a walk with God. It may be strong, it may be weaker, but you have a relationship with God. If you don't have any relationship with God, you need to get saved. You need to act on the truth. You need to take the medicine, so to speak. Come unto me, those who, all you who are thirst. We read, we've been in that text recently, a couple weeks ago, amen? The end of a Sunday message, not too long ago. It's very, very important that we get this, guys. Now, why aren't they coming to him then? I mentioned. I mentioned. Because that's what kind of freaked me out. It's like, why are they? I can understand that they don't believe in repentance. I, don't, I can understand when they go to James chapter 2 and it says, faith without works is dead. They say, yeah, that's not really talking about salvation either. I can understand why they do that because they're distorting the gospel. But why de-emphasize coming to Jesus? 
Because I saw that with the Colts. Why would they be doing that purposely? Because I believe a lot of them are sincerely deceived. Same with the Colts, though. And I believe it is because, as I mentioned earlier, when you start encouraging people to come to Jesus, how did Isaiah feel in Isaiah chapter 6 about coming to the Lord? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Felt like, I'm in trouble. I can't. But he wanted to. But then when he recognizes God's grace, it's like, wow. Or how about Peter? When all the fish is hauled up, when he first came to Jesus, right? Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, right? But you recognize he loves you. He's propitious toward you. He gave himself for you. He wants you to know him. Then guess what Peter emphasizes? Epigenosis, right? Knowing Jesus, experiential knowledge, and loving him. Peter, will you two go away? Because John 6, 6, 6 says many of his disciples follow him no longer. And it, Jesus says, Peter, will you two go away? And Peter says, Lord, you know, where will I go? You have the words of eternal life. Go away. He's talking about going away from him, a relationship with him. That's why 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, if they have escaped the corruption of the world, how do you escape the corruption of the world? Listen to this. And this is the NIV because it brings out the Greek really well. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you escape the corruption of the world? By knowing. And it's not the word gnosis, okay? It's epigenosis. It's, it's experiential knowledge. That's how you escape the corruption of the world, by knowing Jesus. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord, and not just by knowing our Lord, the right Jesus, right? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off than at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. And that's what Christianity was called throughout the book of Acts, the way it's called the way of righteousness as well, uh, elsewhere. Then to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. So you, it's about knowing him, right? Well, if you come into his presence, can you just say, hey, Lord, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to follow your word. I don't want to follow you and your, the, the, what you, you shared. But I do want to be saved. So I believe that you died for me. But don't ever think that I'm going to obey you until you take me to heaven. Do you think people come to Jesus like that? Do you think they say those kinds of things? No. Because they know if they're coming to Jesus, they better be seriously contrite to a degree, right? Right? And listen to this. Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 and 5, about approaching Jesus, 3 through 5. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear deceitfully. He who received blessing from the Lord and vindication from our God of his salvation. You couldn't be in rebellion to God. It was unthinkable. And come to him in a state of unrepentant rebellion. Okay, so we look at the Psalms and obviously you don't need to do all the things that are in the law to come to the Lord. You don't need to do anything but have faith now, amen? The just shall live by faith. But guess what? Faith says, hey, come to me. I need, I need cleansing, amen? And I'm seeking you, but I need to be purified by the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 or 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our righteousness. But they knew in both Testaments, you couldn't just come to God and be in rebellion to him and remain in a state of rebellion and claim to be saved and right with him. That's not anywhere taught in scripture. Show me anywhere where you could be in total rebellion to God and that's described as a declaration of faith and right standing with God when you want nothing to do with him. In fact, listen to what in the New Testament, 1 John, or out of James chapter four, verses six through 10. But he gives greater grace. This is James chapter 4, 6 through 10. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble. He does not give grace to the arrogant and the wicked and the proud. Amen. Good job, buddy. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
You humble yourself by recognizing, man, I'm a sinner. I'm in big trouble. I've got the devil. I'm, I'm on the devil side. Okay, I've got to resist There's this devil. And in the Greek, it's an about face. I'm going to resist him and submit. That word, that word submit means to do means to submit to the higher ranking officer. In this case, it's not just higher ranking officer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So you're like, I resist the devil. I flee and he'll flee. That's good. Amen. Getting harassed by the devil. Just resist him, man. And seek Jesus. I draw near the Lord. Guess what? He draws near to me. And then he gives me grace and he gives you grace. He exalts us and blesses our lives. Amen. It's a beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. I mean, listen to this. James chapter, in fact, let's go there since we're talking about James a couple times now. We might as well go to the passage. Let's go to James chapter 2. Now, they butchered the scriptures. I mean, you won't find this teaching. I mean, I've seen many scriptures twisted by the Gnostics and the Neo-Gnostics and so forth. But what these guys do to Romans 10, many of them, and James 2 and other passages, they're unrecognizable, these passages. After, you, you know, you look at them, you say, oh, this, well, no, this is what it means. I ordered a free grace study Bible just to see how they're twisting many, many scriptures. I don't think it's out yet. I think it's still being, I thought I ordered it. I got to go back and see if I, if it's just one of those things that wasn't out yet. And it was a pre-order because it's, it's been a while. But in James chapter 2, verse 14, what does it say? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Because they don't believe there needs to be any works. Because guess, guess what? All you have to do is mentally assent, Right? Many of these free grace teachers, all you have to do is mainly assent that Jesus died for you. You don't have to have any fruit or any works in your life, many of them teach. Ever. Oh, and if you die later after you mentally ascended that, yeah, Jesus died for me because you're in rebellion to God and everything, well, then you'll just lose some rewards. Or God will kill you and take you to heaven sooner. And a lot of them think, oh, great, it'll just take me sooner. Oh, well, everybody's be happy and heavy out of heaven. I don't worry about losing some rewards. I mean, how do you think they rationalize that? You pour, you're pouring gasoline on a fire. You're pouring false doctrine on the flesh that's just raging, right? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. It's asking for what answer? No. In fact, he says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet... Yeah, do not give them the necessary, uh, what's necessary for their body. What use is that? Okay. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Catch verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. It's not saving faith. Now, they'll say, I've seen this, commentaries on this. Well, they did have faith, but... It's dead, just like if you see a dead body, it was once alive. So they were once alive in the faith, but then they died. Then, it, then their faith died. But it doesn't mean they never had faith. Really? Even if we, now I'm not saying that, that I'm not saying they didn't have faith ever, because it doesn't really speak to that issue. And, but, but to press that and say that, and say that that means they're still saved, contradicts James 5, 19, 20. Brethren, a little bit later, if one of you departs from the faith, one of the brethren, right? And you bring him back, you'll save a soul from death, and hide a multitude of sins. Oh, well, that just means that they'll die early. Now, Wayne Grudem's actually right where he says, when you see the word sozo, saved, in the Greek New Testament, it's talking about salvation from sins unless the context is emphasizing healing. And the context there does not emphasize healing. And it's talking about a soul eschatologically perishing, as Grudem says. And I agree with him on that. Um... But notice he, he says, even so, it has no works, it's dead, being by itself. Then look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What's his point there? You believe that, you, that's where the proposition is correct. You believe that God is one? He says, hey, that's good. But the demons also believe that and shudder. But the point is, the demons are not what? Saved. It's not good enough to have just right doctrine. You have to know the Lord. You have to have fruit. The faith needs to be alive. And faith is a verb. It's active. You're trusting the Lord. You're leaning into him. And when you're trusting Jesus, it will show up in your life. 
You may have a small amount of works, good works. You may have a, a larger amount of works. You may have a whole lot of good works for Jesus. But you're going to have some fruit. Amen? There's going to be a change in your life. You know, I tell people, you can't stick a big piece of metal in a light socket or, you know, electrical socket and not, not be affected by it. Okay? Can't stick a fork and a knife in there and just and not be affected. Don't do that, kids. Don't do that. It'll affect you, though. Jesus is far more powerful than electricity. You can't be. The Bible says if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Amen? So we're new creations in Christ. Are you with me? You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In fact, it's interesting in Mark chapter 5, a demoniac, a demon-possessed guy with legion, right, comes to Jesus and he says, you know, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? You know, or me, he goes, you know, you're the son of the most high God. Good theology. Yeah, he's right. Was he saved? No. The, the woman in Acts 16, 16, you know, these servants, Paul and Silas, they preached the way of righteousness. The Greek, there's no the there. And they served the most high God. She could have met Zeus, or maybe she was, I believe she was implying to them, oh, you serve Yahweh, but it was a mixed message. That didn't mean she was saved. Simon the sorcerer, he believed and was baptized. But Peter said he needed to repent still, right? That's important. Now look at verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is what? It's dead, or verse 20, useless. Guess what they say about this text that we're just reading? Oh, it has nothing to do with salvation. This is talking about leaving a fruitful life. <sighs> really? Where do we see that anywhere even in church history up until these guys came along? It just blows me away, and it's, it's that. It's really, really that sad. In fact, uh, as we end here, I'll just share a few scriptures with you I want you to think about. Luke chapter 9, listen to what Jesus said. Verse 23 through 26. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And they'll say, ah, oh, that's not about salvation and being saved. That has to do with being a disciple. You don't have to do that. That's, that's an option. Really? Let's look at the very next verse. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. No, it's talking about salvation. And that's how it had always been understood until these geniuses came around 2,000 years after Christ and said we've missed it for 2,000 years. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and with his holy angels. Wow. Well, yeah, justification is just believing Jesus died for you. That's, we don't need sanctification. Really? Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Just like if anyone be in Christ is a new creation, right? Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This was a church that was not making a lot of progress. But even those who are called uh, fleshly still in their thinking and being divisive in chapter 3 have still been sanctified and there's been a transformation in their lives to some degree. And he's concerned that they could live like that and fail to enter the, inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, you know what they do with that? Well, they won't inherit things, they'll just, but they'll still enter the kingdom. No kidding. They twist all these verses. But look at verses, look at the, just jump down to verse 15. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Now, these are those who have been justified, who have been sanctified. He's still concerned that they could fall away. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself with a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, 
The two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral sins against his own body. Or do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul recognizes that they were fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and, and effeminate and, and uh, you know, drunkards and revilers. They were all those things, but God changed them. But guess what? This guy in the church started having sex with his mom. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's in the Bible. He's blown it big time. And Paul said, cast the leaven out of the church because a little bit of leaven, leaven's a whole lump. That guy needed to repent because it's going to spread throughout the church. Now he's concerned that guess what? That guy, because what they're doing is spread, that kind of libertine attitude is spread. So Paul's saying, hey, we were changed, man, when we came to Christ, amen? Now don't think you can go out and seek prostitutes now because you're going to be in trouble and you aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he writes to the Corinthians in his second letter, the irony of the whole thing is that guy in chapter two that was having sex with his mom and was kicked out of the church, repents and comes back. And Paul says to do three things. He says, confirm your love to him. Forgive him and, conf and uh, comfort him. But then he's concerned that even though that guy's back, some of the others have not yet repented. And he just said they won't inherit God's kingdom. And they said, don't be deceived. In other words, a lot of people are going to be deceived into thinking they don't need to repent. They don't need to get right with God. They could just mentally assent that Jesus died for them and they're going to be fine. How do I know that he's concerned about that? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're actually going to be done on time. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You're like, I'll see it when I believe it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. Paul says, I'm afraid. This is 2 Corinthians now, after you wrote that other letter. I'm afraid when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of you, those who have sinned in the past and not repented of their impurity, immorality and sensuality, which they have what? Practiced. So he said, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 5, the letter before this, I'm he goes, you guys ought not be more, you guys ought not be rejoicing over this guy that's having, because they were rejoicing, oh, look what we could do since we're Christians, we're free. He goes, you shouldn't be rejoicing, you should be mourning. Now he's concerned that some of them aren't mourning and haven't repented because godly sorrow, he says in the same book, leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death. So he says, you ought to be mourning. I'm afraid some are mourning. They haven't turned from their sin. And he says right here, they haven't repented. By the way, notice that repentance is actually turning away from what? Sin. Changing your mind about sin and practicing it. They have not, look what he says in the middle of the verse, I, I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. They haven't turned so repentance is a change of heart, change of mind, but it's a turning from a life of wickedness in the heart to Christ. So what's the key here? Paul wants them to know that when he gets there, they better make sure their hearts are right. Otherwise they're doomed. It's not enough to have mental assent and just practice rebellion against God. Because look at chapter 13, verse 5. Check it out. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are what? In the faith. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is what? In you. Jesus Christ is in you. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. It's a relationship knowing Jesus. That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you have what? Fail the test. The Greek word is adakamas. That's the same word he used in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The letter before this establishes his meaning. I, he, he, what did he say? He basically talks about how he denies himself. And he runs the race to win. So after he preached the gospel to others, he himself would not be a docamas. He didn't want to become a docamas. He tells us what that means. It means to be without Christ. So he continues in the faith. Continues to trust Jesus. Now they're called to test themselves to make sure they're in the faith. Well, how are they testing themselves? They're making sure they're not practicing immorality. Chapter 12, verse 21. You see how it fits together? They're making sure they're not practicing rebellion against Christ. And that they've repented. And they test themselves, where's my life at? What am, am, I, am I following Christ? You know, you won't go to one of these free grace churches and they won't, they won't go to these verses and say, test yourselves to the congregation because they don't believe you need fruit. They don't believe you need a transformed life or that's the result necessarily. Of, you know, oh, it'd be good. Oh yeah, they'll say, oh yeah, we, need to, we should walk and follow Jesus, but that's not what saves you. 
Well, yeah, no, but you're saved by grace through faith, but true faith is not alone. Amen? It has evidence to it. And by the way, in 1 John, and I'm watching that clock very carefully right now. It's 8.43 on my clock up there. 1 John, he writes, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. He doesn't want us to have a false assurance or he doesn't want us to have no assurance. How, does, how do we know that we have eternal life? He says that he that's born of God does not practice sin. 1 John 3, 9. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Those who know God, he says, don't walk in darkness. Amen. That's how we know that we have eternal life, that we're actually abiding in Christ. We're seeking him. Not perfect, but we're, our hearts are not in rebellion to him, wanting nothing to do with him. But when we fall short, we say, God, have mercy. We're contrite. And we humble ourselves before him. We ask for a cleansing. Amen. And then we follow him. Amen. So you guys, do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you come to him? One of my favorite passages in Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. The Lord says, seek the Lord. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And I need to do. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion upon him and unto our God and he will abundantly pardon. What does it mean to abundantly pardon? Back to James 5, 9, 20. Brother, if any of you turn from the faith and one, or the truth and one brings it back, he'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. That's, that's like the prodigal son who was dead and was alive again. Amen? He was forgiven his debt. You can get right with Jesus right now, but you need to come to him. Call upon him. Amen? Father God, we pray for everybody here. If they don't know you, we pray right now that they would understand that you're calling them they haven't been saved, that they would recognize that Jesus died for them and rose again and conquered the grave. They put their trust in him as the son of God for their sins and they come to him. As Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock for backsliders, apostates, those who've turned away. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come into that person and sup with that person and that person with me. Turn to Jesus right now and know the Lord so you don't pass from this world into eternity saying, Lord, Lord, but remain lost. Make sure he is your Lord and you're trusting and following him in the name of Jesus, amen.